any of your kids walked off that way, grab them. <laughs> kids are in here today, kin- kindergarten through fifth grade, that is. So um, hopefully everybody's here. Sorry about that. Um, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You, you guys sounded great. That's, uh, um, that doesn't mean much coming from me, just so you guys know. <laughs> but, um, but it did. It, this morning we're going to talk about what, what it is um, for us to be one body. What, what does it mean, right? So we've been kind of going through 1 Corinthians, and, and what Paul has been doing was like, hey, look at our lives through this gospel lens, right? Like as if we're putting on these glasses, and we're looking, and we're seeing the world, our circumstances, our lives, our friendships, our relationships, everything through the lens of the gospel, and how that's transformative, and that, that changes the way we live, the decisions we make, and, and our entire lives. Um, and this morning what we're going to look at is something that's, that's probably something that we do quite frequently that um, we really don't spend a lot of time um, talking about it. Disproportionately, we, we do it, but we don't spend a lot of time on that. So we're going to do something a little bit different here this morning, and I need your guys' attention for like five minutes, and I'm going to give like just a quick rundown of the whole sermon specifically to the kids. So if you're kindergarten or fifth grade, why don't you guys come up front? Yeah, I want you guys to come down here real quick. And I'm just going to give like five minutes of this whole sermon, and then you guys can just check out. I'm just joking. You can just sit down right here. Come on. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade, you guys, you guys are good. You guys are good because you're, you're in youth now. You're good. Come on up. You're, you're good. You're not. Okay. <laughs> I'm just joking. All right. All right. So we're going to talk about two things that, that you've probably seen done or maybe you've done. So we're going to talk about baptism and communion. You guys have seen the communion stuff over here. How many of you are baptized? Okay. So we're going to talk about both of these things, okay? Specifically this morning, we're going to talk about communion because it's weird, to be honest. We, we get up and we eat this little piece of bread does anybody know what the bread represents? Yeah. Nice work, Genevieve. Good job. Solid. All right, what about the juice? Yeah. Nice. His blood. All right, so, sorry, I didn't, you guys probably couldn't hear that. Bre- uh, his body and his blood. Absolutely. Okay, so why do we do this? So I'm going to stop with the question. You guys don't have to answer that. I'm going to talk now. Um, so... <laughs> When we do this, okay, it's, it's kind of like, I can't take this off. Uh, <laughs> it's permanently affixed to me. But this is a wedding ring, right? So this represents the marriage to my wife, right? I got this on a day. But quite frankly, I don't think about that day very often. I think about our relationship. That's what that is about, on one day, Jesus died on the cross and died for us and saved us, right? And, and he took away all of our sins. We, he gave us his righteousness, and that, that happened on that day. And so and when he started this was on the very last night when he had dinner or supper with the disciples. And so he goes, hey, eat this bread, drink this juice, and remember me. So in some sense, it's like this, and then I go, hey, I remember the day I got married to my wife. I re- we remember what Jesus did on that day, but it's more than that. 
It's a lot more than that. In fact, what you're going to hear, if you pay attention throughout the rest of the sermon, and on your activity sheet, I think it talks about some of these things, but um, what, what we find is that, that Jesus actually, this was a gift to us to, for God to communicate to us the relationship he wants to have with us. This, this means, my wife gave me this, right? This means that she loves me. This means that she cares for me. That means that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he wants to know us and be known by us. And so it's about this relationship that God wants to have with us. So when we get up and we do communion, when we go and we eat the bread or drink the juice, that is the time when we're thinking about who God is and his grace, that he loves us and that he saved us. And so this is a huge thing, and we do it. It's available every week, right? If, if people want to take it, if they're baptized, they take it. So here's the funny part. We talk a lot about baptism, and it happens once. And we, talk, we rarely talk about communion, and we do it every week. But baptism is the thing that comes first, when we believe that Jesus died for our sins and we place our trust in him, we get baptized and then we start taking communion and that's part of how we remember what Jesus did for us. All right, so that's the summary of the sermon. So if you guys paid attention, you guys can leave. No, I'm just joking. Um, does that make sense? All right, so you guys have activity sheets that, that uh, Ms. Leslie put together for you guys so you guys can do that. Baptism. We are having baptisms next week. If anybody would like to get baptized, that's adults and kids or whatever, talk to your parents if you're a kid. If you're an adult, you can talk to me or any of the other pastors. But, um, but that's, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Cool? Sound good? All right, you guys can go back to your seats. All right, it's a family Sunday, so most of you guys know the ropes here. It's totally cool if the kids are talking or whatever. I mean, um, sometimes it makes me jump a little bit, but it's all good. Um, all right, so that's what we're going to be talking. So Paul is going to make this huge transition, and it's going to seem like he's just gone off the rails and that he's kind of gone in a completely different direction, but he hasn't. And, and my goal today is as we exegete the scriptures, we walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11, we're going to see that what, Paul, what that is is so fundamentally important to our faith. It's not just some rote, religious, sacramental type of thing that we just do because we're Christians. It's deep. It's more than that. It's significant. So that's what we're going to be spending our time on this morning. Let me start by praying. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for loving us and saving us. Oh. God, we, we can't recognize that enough. And even more than that, Father, that, that you want us to know you. You want us to draw close to you because you know that that is where we will find peace and joy and contentment. God, that's our prayer this morning. All of us want that. All of us want to know what that looks like in our lives as we deal with chaos and failure and brokenness in a sinful world. We pray that this morning that you would give us a new hope, that you would refresh our minds and our hearts and help us to see you more clearly. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
if you are a guest here, and I haven't said hi to you, please see me afterwards or whatever. I'm, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Jerry, thanks for being here. Jerry Sinclair is in the back. He comes every once in a while. Um, uh, runs a ministry called Faithful and True. I told him... Um, God providentially brings him here at an appropriate time. I told him we're going through 1 Corinthians. It's all about um, faithfulness inside of marriage and uh, all the stuff that we've been talking about, which I'm not going to get into since it's a family Sunday. But, um, but he is a great, and I've got a couple of his business cards up there on the table, but definitely some, a ministry that um, can help uh, you in, um, can help us in our struggles there. Um, all right, Trey and Tara, hi, <laughs> good seeing you guys. All right, we're going to jump into this thing. Um, so 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is actually what you guys probably read in your small group or you studied this week. I wanted to emphasize this. I wanted to start off with this because this is the foundation upon which Paul is going to continue on in the rest of chapter 10. And so in verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We had a good debate in our, in our small group on Wednesday. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You see, the Corinthians were operating with this sense of Christian freedom. Right? They had been saved. There was, there, the, the society was debaucherous. The society was, was chaotic and, and, and just bad. Right? It, was, it was a very carnal, uh, sensuous society. And so then there's these, these Corinthian Christians who now have this freedom in Christ. And they go, this is awesome because I get the best of both worlds. I have been saved through Christ and I can continue to do all the fun stuff. And in their minds, this is what they thought, that genuinely, this is what they thought that that freedom in Christ meant. It meant that they could go on and continue to live the lives that they lived, but they were rescued and saved by Christ. And so what Paul does here is he goes, hey, you need to be careful. You need to be really careful about the things that you do in this life. It matters what you do. And we've seen this throughout 1 Corinthians. It matters what we do with these physical bodies of ours. It matters. And what he says is that the temptations that you're going to encounter are common. Here's my interpretation of that. You encounter them every day. They're common. You're probably not dealing with some egregious, uh, you know, like you're, you're on the verge of um, trying to... Uh, murdering somebody, right? Like, like, I don't think, I hope, nobody in here is like, I was really close on Friday. I mean, maybe you'd use that colloquially, but, but we know that that's so far out of bounds. Like, that, like that's, that doesn't hope, that doesn't normally happen. He goes, it's not that these things are uncommon, that they're these way aberrant types of things. The things that are gonna overtake you are these temptations that are very common. That word overtaken means to be carried away. He says that these temptations that are common in our lives, that we encounter every day, that you are going to encounter this afternoon, have the capacity to overtake you, to carry you off. He says, so be careful. 
think about what you're doing. Now, he goes on to explain that, that God, right, if, if you are a believer in Christ, if you trust in him, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you're protected, right? You're not gonna be carried off and, and lose your salvation. Like, that's not the point. What he's saying here is that you need to be careful about what you're doing. You can't just play around with anything. You can't just make any decision. And he's gonna go on as, and we, as we start in verse 14 and see what his very first recommendation is. And look at what he says. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It's actually three times that Paul uses that term, flee. He says, flee from sexual immorality, flee from idolatry, and then he tells Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. That's it. And he says, flee, run, run. You guys, this was super convicting to me. How many times do we react that way in life? Where we go, this is too much for me to handle. I need to run. I think that goes counter to our culture. I think our culture goes, I got this. I'm strong enough. My faith is strong enough. I'm strong enough. My marriage is strong enough. My kids are strong enough. We, we trick ourselves into thinking this thing. And God's saying, run. You guys all seen the, the meme? I should have brought that up, right? That meme where it goes, run. And then it's like somebody run. Have you guys seen this? I don't know how. Anyway, okay, Google that afterwards. I'll post it on the family page. Um, that's, that's what he sees. He goes, you aren't strong enough. And yet our culture, our society embraces that and says, no, 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 you should be. And don't claim you're not. Because weakness isn't a virtue in our culture. And God goes, well, actually, what does Paul say? I boast in my weakness because that makes him stronger. He says, I want you to run, flee from idolatry. So here's the, here's the question then. What is idolatry? Let's spend a little bit of time on that. Is that, is that just some worship of ancient gods? Anybody here got like a wooden statue that they bow down to every morning? Probably not, I hope. If you do, come find me afterwards and we'll talk a little bit. He says, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is not just the worship of these like ancient gods. It is putting anything on the throne, right? The altar of our praise. What do we praise instead of God. That's idolatry. When we, when we supplant God, we move him to the side, and instead we put something as the focus of our worship. Here's the thing, though. It's not a deed. It's not like you're gonna go out and go like, hey, today I'm gonna go do some idolatry. It doesn't work like that. It's a desire of the heart. It's a disordered desire of the heart. It's when we begin worshiping the creation instead of the creator. It's when we take the things that God created that are good and are blessings and are beautiful and we say, that's what I'm about instead of being about that, instead of being about the cross, instead of being about proclaiming the gospel in our lives. That is where idolatry comes into our lives. And he says that this is common to man. This temptation that he's talking about, this is the idolatry. He goes, what you guys are dealing with here is idolatry. You guys are taking these things, you're putting them on this pedestal in your life, and you're going, this is my everything. If this went away, my life comes crumbling down. Name it. What is it in your life? 
If the rug gets pulled out on this one thing, does your life come crumbling down? Because what doesn't move is the foundation that is in Jesus Christ. Immovable. It will never go away. This is why God proclaims that this is the gospel, the good news, because it's, it's immovable. It will always be there. And that's why we find joy and peace and contentment in there because as, as Warner was talking about earlier, right, as, as we go through a life of chaos and twists and turns and unpredictable things, all that happens in our life is this rug gets pulled out from us and we catch our footing, just <laughs> run to this way, right? Doesn't it feel like our life can be like that? And that's an indication of our idolatry. It's when we want, crave, seek satisfaction outside of God. See, I think, um, I think for us, it's very common. And it was for the Corinthians. And in fact, if you back up, he talks about this for the Israelites too. Like, this isn't, there's nothing new. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. The temptations that you're dealing with, they might look a little different, but they're really the same thing. And he says, I have one solution for you. Run. Run away from them. Identify them and then run away from them. How do you identify them? You stay in God's word. You, you have this community of believers that goes, hey, how's this? And what's going on here? And, and how are we doing? And I love you. And, and I, I love you, but have you looked at this? And, and what, what do you, uh, can you, can you tell me how, how am I doing? And we look at this and we go, I want to run from these things because I want to run into the embrace of Jesus Christ. And so this is what he starts out with. And then he's going to explain, and this is where it kind of goes to the side, and he's going to go, let's talk about communion. And you're like, I don't, where are we going, Paul? So let me, let me read through this. We're going to be in um, verses 16. Oh, Hang on, I didn't hit verse 15. Verse 15, it says, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. And so Paul is rationalizing with them. He's like, think about this. You know that idolatry is dangerous. You know it. You've seen people fall. You've seen people struggle, others. And yet we stand there and go, that won't happen to me. This is what he's saying. He's like, you're reasonable, what makes you different than the rest of humanity? Run. All right, in verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What Paul jumps to here is he starts giving this, this visual of this idea of participation. He's pointing to communion. He's pointing to the Last Supper. And for, in fact, turn over to Luke chapter 22 where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. What does he say in um, Luke 22 verse 19? He says, and he took 
bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So what he's pointing to is, is, um, is Jesus instituting this, and then if you go to John chapter 6, he emphasizes this even more. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. See, so Paul is pointing to this bread and this juice, and he's going, this is why you need to flee from idolatry. This is why this is so important for our lives. He's pointing to communion. He's pointing to the Lord's Supper. He's pointing to what Jesus has talked about in the past. In fact, what we just read there in John chapter six, that's right after Jesus is talking about, I am the bread of life. Two chapters earlier in John chapter four, he meets the woman at the well and he tells her what? I'll give you living water. What does Jesus say when he's being tempted in the desert? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. This is real food. This is spiritual food. It's nourishment that we need. Not in the sense that you're gonna go over there and fill your stomach, right? In fact, that's intentionally why they are small portions, in case you didn't know. Is because they don't, it, it's not intended to be a physical consumption that you walk away going, oh, that was a great communion meal. The point is that we go to this and that we are fed spiritually, that we are nourished. How? Why? Because look at what he says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's a unifying event that we are being united together as a church, but also united with Christ. Just like what I was talking to the kids about. This is, this is revolution. In fact, the word that he uses, participation, I'm not sure what I wrote up there. I think I... Doesn't it say participation or something like that? One more. There you go. If you look at verse 16, and if you've got a Bible or you know, want to highlight on your app or whatever, this is, this is um, incredible. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So underline that word, participation. Then in verse 17, he's going to say that again, for we all partake, or sorry, um, says it again somewhere. Uh, sorry, verse 16, participation in the blood of Christ, and then uh, again, participation in the body of Christ. That word, participation, is not you went to the sides and you ate some bread and drank some juice. It's not, it's not a, uh, a rote thing that you're doing because you're now part of the club. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, that word is the same word we use for fellowship. It's koinonia. What he's saying here is that you are fellowshipping with Christ. 
that there is a communion, that there's community happening there, that there is a unity that is being created when we go and we partake, that we are reflecting on who Christ is and what he's done for us. It's like the ring. It's like we get to go to the table. Imagine, if you would, being married and never telling your spouse you love them. You're like, well, I told you I love you when we got married. Does that work? No. It's an ongoing relationship. And this God gave to us. We didn't ask for it. Jesus instituted it. Jesus knew what we needed. He goes, hey, I'm going to give you this last supper. And I want you to eat this bread. And I want you to think about my body that was broken for you. I want you to take this juice and I want you to think about my blood that's been poured out, that's, that's established this new covenant that allowed us to be reconciled with God. He goes, I want you to spend the time thinking about what God has done for you, that he loves you, and that he cares for you. He goes, that that's why this matters. That's why communion matters. That, and, and you guys, I gotta be honest, I'm very convicted that we um, don't give it its due attention. And, and this has been a, a rising conviction in my own life, and I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know. We, we always have it over there, and we've done different things. But, but what I wanna impress upon you guys is that when you read Paul's perspective, his godly-inspired perspective in Scripture, that is not just rolling over there and taking bread and juice because you got baptized. It's not just something that you do on Sunday mornings. It is about a relationship between you and God. Paul isn't just distracted in this section. He started with flee from idolatry. And then he spends this time talking about this. There's a reason for that. He's establishing this unity. Right? We, we call ourselves the body of Christ. God calls us the body of Christ. There's a unifying event, right? God fills us with his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit dwells inside of us as believers. We are united with Christ. We have been adopted by God. We can't be closer to him than those. Would you guys agree? There's nothing God could do that could make us closer other than when he fully pulls us into his physical presence and we are actually with God. But up until now, he's adopted us, he loves us, he showed us grace and mercy and love, he's given us his Holy Spirit, and he's united us with Christ. There's a unity here that's going on. And then he, what Paul does is he points back to Israel in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel are not, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar, koinonia, same word. He's saying, look at Israel. It was the same thing for them. They were one. Where, where would Israel have gone? To, to offer sacrifices if it wasn't at the temple. They didn't know where else to go. That was where God was. That is where he was communing with them. Now, I'm not saying that this is the only place you can get communion, right? But what I'm saying is that that idea that God wants to be one with Israel is the same thing 
for us who are now adopted children of God. There's no other place for us to go. And so what Paul is doing goes, then why are you going somewhere else to be satisfied? Why idolatry? Why are you getting more joy, more happiness? Why are you getting your cup filled elsewhere instead of in my presence? If you are really one with me, why are you going somewhere else? Why are your hearts disordered? You see the connection here? This is where Paul's establishing that we are united together, not just as a church, but we are united with Christ. And he goes, how can you walk away from that? How can you go somewhere else? In fact, this idolatry is really as if it's spiritual immorality. It's like we are cheating on God. That's what idolatry is, that we have this covenantal relationship with God, and we went, that's great, but I'm busy. That's fantastic, God. I'm glad you love me. I'm glad you adopted me, and you gave me your Holy Spirit, all that stuff. That's fantastic. I'm busy, though. I got to go do this. Or, thank you for all of that. However, my security is actually in my job and my finances. Now, we would never say that, actually out loud. But we feel it. And we think it. So look what he says in verse 19. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything. So if if you've been keeping track of this, previously, Paul's been talking about Um, the food that's been sacrificed to idols, whether they should eat it or not, and whether that's participating in this idol worship. And, And Paul makes it really clear. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. He's like, the wooden statue? Meaningless. God, no. God isn't like, um, God isn't jealous in the sense that he's afraid that somebody else is going to win us over, right? He's not afraid that we're gonna go find a better joy and better contentment somewhere else. God isn't concerned about that. He knows the truth. There is no other place for joy and contentment. He's jealous in the sense that he wants our affection, he wants us to experience what he has for us because he knows it's the best thing for us. And so he goes, that wooden thing, that activity you participate in, those sports, Netflix, your family, all those things become idols in our lives. And he goes, you're not going to get joy and contentment out of those things. You understand that, right? And this is what he's, this is what he's saying. He's like, I, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul just jumped pretty deep there, didn't he? I was like, demons? That seems a little... Is that hyperbole? <laughs> no. No, he, he goes, it, it's, it's, not that, it's not that your job is bad. It's not that it's evil. But when you worship it, 
it becomes the work of the devil. That's what he's saying very clearly. When we participate in idolatry, it's not that the, the created thing that God gave us is bad in and of itself. Our, our marriages and our kids and our work and success and, and all those things and, and uh, everything, right? That's not sinful. is it, great. It's for us. But if we begin to worship it, then we're participating with demons. Don't take this lightly. Don't cast this to the side. This is, this is actually throughout Scripture. In fact, if you turn over to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writing to them in verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in, his, in the Lord, not yourself. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's our battle. And so he's telling the Corinthians, don't, don't treat these things trivially. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. The thing that lurks right outside this door is not some big scary devil sitting out there waiting to steal you. It's much more subtle than that. It's much more common. And, and at first, it's just you embracing and enjoying the gifts that God has given you. And that's great. Until we begin to worship this thing. Whatever it is. And it's at that point that we are in idolatry. And it's at that point that we are called to run. Run as fast as you can. Turn away from it. Recognize that you have no strength. So what does that, what does that look like? How do you actually run away from one of these things? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But that's for you and God to figure out. That's for you and your spouse to figure out. That's for you and your kids, you and your employer, you and your sports, you and whatever it is. That's for you to figure out and go, how do I not make this an object of worship in my life? It says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God is jealous. Again, not because he's afraid that, that we're going to figure out some place that is so much better than with God. That's not why. He's jealous because just like you looking at your kids and you go, I know what is the right answer here. I know what you should be spending your time doing. I know what you should be thinking. I just wish you knew it. That's how God sees us. When we go off and we start worshiping these other things in our lives, he goes, no, I want you to come to me. Come here. Come to the Lord's table. Come eat with me. Fellowship with me. Commune with me. Be one with me. Because I have peace and joy and contentment waiting for you like you cannot experience anywhere else. And you will never experience anywhere else except in my presence. 
We've got, we've got to capture this, okay? Listen, this is, idolatry is a heart condition. It is not a deed, okay? You can go and you can go binge watch Netflix. That's fine. But if you're worshiping it, if that becomes what defines your life, it's idolatry. You can go participate in any sports. You can take your kids to anything. You can, you can absolutely enjoy it and do whatever you want with it. But if you begin to worship it, if it becomes the defining thing in your life, it's idolatry. If your relationship with your spouse is the best thing ever, and you're like, this is amazing, and I worship my relationship with my spouse, it's idolatry. You guys get this, right? Go back. If it gets pulled out, does your world come crumbling down? If the answer is yes, then it's idolatry. Because I can tell you there's one thing that won't get pulled out from under you. And that's Jesus Christ. In verse 23, he goes back to chapter 6. If you guys remember this, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You guys, this is why I can say Netflix isn't evil. Sports aren't evil. These things aren't evil in and of themselves. Everything that ex- nearly everything that exists, right, is, is a beautiful gift by God if used appropriately, if not worshiped. We gotta, we gotta keep that in check, okay? Because otherwise, we can go super in the wrong direction, just start drawing lines. And then you guys gotta put tents in here, and we gotta all hang out in here the entire time, and all you can do is read scripture. That's not what God wants for us, because we've got work to do in the world, right? He says, if one of the unbelievers, this is actually an incredible verse, In verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Don't ask questions. (laughs) That's what he says. He says, go to dinner. You don't need to know where it came from. Just, Just be quiet and eat your food. Be a reasonable gentleman or gentle lady, right? Like, just, just, just be sociable. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. This is incredible freedom because what God is saying is that depending on the situation, you respond differently. This is not how our world sees things, right? It's black or white. You either always respond this way or you always respond this way. And if you, and if you switch, it's hypocrisy. That's not what scripture says here. Scripture says that that you can eat, don't ask any questions, but if they tell you that, you've got some responsibility to do now. Not for your own sake, but to protect the conscience of the person that's telling you this. You guys get this? You guys see the freedom in this? Like this is, this means that we live lives with discernment, with freedom, and what are we doing? We're about building others up, building up God's kingdom. That's the point of our lives. And he says in verse 29, I do not mean your conscience but his, for why should my liberty 
be determined by someone else's conscience. So he goes, listen, I'm free to do whatever. But then he gives this rhetorical question. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And so what he's saying here is like, I can do whatever I want. Like, I have liberty. I have freedom. Remember, he's telling the Corinthians this. You have freedom. You can do whatever you want. But are you about the Father's business? Is your freedom more important than somebody else's conscience? This is, this is an underlying statement that Paul says over and over again. Gene even talked about, right, like, lay it down. Lay down our lives. Lay down who we are. Lay down our freedom if it will communicate and proclaim the gospel in somebody else's lives. If my freedom, so let me, let me give it this way. There's two responses, right? I could live in freedom, and I could, in, in some situations, my freedom could testify to the freedom that's in Christ, to somebody who's enslaved to the world. And they may go, that's amazing. I want that freedom. But in others, it may, it may look like things aren't good. Like, you can't do that. That's wrong. You're, you're eating food sacrificed to idols. You're doing something that, is, that is, would cause me to be in idolatry. Well, in that case, I'm not going to do it because it's not about me. It's not about my conscience. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. You're okay. We need to be looking out the way that God sees others and go, how can I best proclaim Christ in their lives? How can I build them up and glorify God? That's the point of what Paul is saying in here. And so he says, model faithfulness. Model this. Model what this looks like in your life because it matters what you do. It matters how you respond. We cannot just do the flipping coin method or just, hey, it's the same answer every time. It's not. I mean, look at, read through the Gospels. Jesus would have failed miserably if, if he acted in the way that we think that we should act. Right? I mean, he, he did things that, that the Jewish leaders thought were wrong. It's like, dude, you can't eat with tax collectors and sinners. It's going to make you unclean. You can't go to a bar. It's going to make you unclean. You can't hang out with people like that. You see what I mean? Maybe, maybe you shouldn't sometimes, but maybe you should sometimes. That's the discernment. And that's the beauty that we have and the freedom we have in Christ. He says here in verse 31, and he summarizes this whole thing. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't offend people. (laughs) Well, that's a tough one, huh? (laughs) Don't purposely offend people. Don't, don't create, I mean, Gene even talked about this last week. Don't create an obstacle for them, right? What have we talked about so far? We talked about, uh, see if I, I wasn't planning on doing this, but we talked about marriage and singleness. We talked about eating food, sacrificed to idols or, or not. We talked about um, uh, paid being, you know, uh, Paul deserving to be paid or, or not being paid. These aren't rights and wrongs. What's Paul's recurring objective? Don't create an obstacle to the gospel. Preach the gospel. 
in and through your lives, make decisions that proclaim your freedom and point to Christ in everything that you're doing. Give it all to the glory of God. It's very easy. It's, but what we want is just, hey, what's the rule book say? Yes or no? And God goes, that's not how it works. I can't give you rules in your marriage, can I? You should always respond this way. It doesn't work. It's a relationship. God wants this relationship with us. And then he says in verse 33, just as I tried to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's the point of our lives. Are we willing to say that? I'm just a vessel here. My freedom, my liberty doesn't mean anything. I am here to point to Christ. You are here to point to Christ. We are here to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because we know the joy and peace and contentment it brings. That's it. What would you give up? What wouldn't you give up? What are you afraid of losing? Paul says, run from your idolatry. Push those things to the side. Proclaim Christ. Like what he says in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I don't know if I've said this up here or not already, but I don't think that's Paul in some special status saying that we should imitate him. He's very clearly been pointing to Christ, right? Early on in 1 Corinthians, he's like, don't follow me, don't follow Apollos, don't follow Peter, follow Christ. Paul's not trying to take and have a bunch of disciples start following him. He's saying, be imitators of me. This is the Paul that had the thorn in the flesh. This is the Paul that didn't always respond well. This is the Paul that murdered people. And we, when we're supposed to imitate him, how? In what sense? We imitate him in our purpose. Same purpose Jesus had. To proclaim the Father's love to proclaim grace, to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. It doesn't mean we're going to make the right decisions. We're going to mess up. And when we do, what do we do? We repent. And we know that the blood of Jesus has already cleansed us. That's the freedom. There's no guilt. There's no shame. We just go, thank God. Thank God. Now let me keep going. Let me keep proclaiming Christ. And then we stumble. Maybe a rug gets pulled out from under us and we go, I didn't realize I was worshiping that. Okay. I wish Jonathan didn't preach on that. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a place that I worship. Okay. God, take this from me. Show me how to not make it an idol in my life. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to not make it an idol in your life because he's a jealous God. He wants 
your affection. He wants your attention. He wants to remind you every single week of who he is and what he's done for us. That's our God. He isn't some God that's sitting up there waiting to strike down a lightning bolt every time you mess up. It's not the God of Scripture. It's this God that, that, who sends his son, and then he has dinner with the disciples. And he's like, hey, I want you to remember me. And, and I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. And you're going to know the Father, and he's going he's to help you remember everything that I've said. He's going to convict you of your sin. You're going to repent, and you're going to trust. And that's what your life's going to look like. And you're going to live the same life I do. Proclaiming Christ in everything that you do. And I'm going to come back. That's the gospel. <laughs> and, this is, and this is how Paul is telling the Corinthians how to deal with the idolatry in their lives. He goes, don't forget. You're one with God. Don't, don't, you can't have fellowship with God and fellowship with the world. Let me pray.